Let us pray. Gracious God, on this snowy winter morn, we ask that you would enliven our hearing so that we might grasp your word and open our eyes so that we might see your vision and work in our hearts so that we will align our will with what you are about in this world. Amen. Our gospel comes today from John's gospel. It's from the first chapter, beginning with the 35th verse. And what we are hearing is the call story for the early disciples. The next day, John the Baptist again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him about whom Moses and the law and the prophets also wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And when Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I thank Jean for her beginning on this. Indeed, this year's epiphany is lingering in my heart. It was fixed there by the Boar's Head and Yule Log Festival that took place last weekend on the 12th day of Christmas. They actually coincided this year. Now on Facebook, my daughter was bragging a little pointedly about how she'd managed to get her tree and Christmas decorations put away before epiphany. And that encouraged my entire family to tell stories from Carolyn's childhood about the time my trees stayed up until the third or fourth Sunday in Lent. (laughs) 
but I'm glad. I'm glad in this post-Christmas season that a little bit of epiphany remains with us. We can see the boar's head banners that are hanging in this sanctuary, and we can look out to the enclosed courtyard and see the beautiful fir tree that shines into the darkness on the bleak winter nights. They remind us. They remind us that the light of God has come into the world and that the darkness has not overcome it. And I find in that reminder encouragement for what comes next. Howard Thurman, an African-American theologian, author and educator and civil rights leader, captured this transitional moment in this verse. He wrote, when the songs of the angel is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home and the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among the people, to make music in the heart. So this morning we move from the light of epiphany back into the light of the everyday and find ourselves in the time when the work of Christmas begins. So our two texts this morning, as Becky was so great to note, are indeed called stories. The first is the story of Samuel, and then the second is of Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. These are classic call stories. There are elements of hearing and seeing and understanding and responding. And in them, we encounter people just as they are invited into God's purpose. Now, Samuel is a boy. A boy as vulnerable and powerless as the baby Jesus we have just celebrated. And he reminds us how God chooses the vulnerable and the powerless to usher in transformative change. We are also introduced to Eli, the aging priest who, whose eyes have grown so dim that he cannot see, living in a desperate time when no vision breaks forth for the people. Now, if we were to read the backstory, we would find it ripped from the headlines of our everyday. We learn that Eli's sons are scoundrels. As his heirs, they are also priests, and yet they've used the power of their position for personal gain. Extorting the people who come to worship, they've been stealing the sacrificial offerings and coercing sexual favors from the vulnerable women who served at the tent of meeting. Word of God is so rare in that days, it takes a stranger, another man of God, to come into Eli to let him know that his legacy is indeed lost and that his family will be cut off. Now, it would be easy it would be easy to discount Eli's part in this story, to see him as someone to be pitied or to be angry with. But his part in this drama is not done. Into his care comes the baby Samuel, 
dedicated to God's service by a grateful mother whose prayers have been answered. In contrast to Eli's son, the boy Samuel grows in stature and favor with God and the people every day. We hear in the story that the night is dark, but the lamp of God is not yet extinguished. It is the light of God shining into the darkness. And into that night, the word of God calls to Samuel, reaching him and calling him by name. What comes next is a bit of a comedy. Back and forth, three times, Samuel hears God's voice and he runs to Eli. Standing near Eli's bed, Samuel responds, Here I am. That's our English translation at least, but it's an idiomatic Hebrew phrase that could be translated, Behold, it's me. And Eli, the visionless, blind Eli, is able to see God at work. Even though it will mean his final fall from power, Eli is both able and willing to teach Samuel the proper way to respond to God's voice. And so, woken from sleep a final time, Samuel is able to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so we move to our New Testament call. We have John the Baptist, who is a charismatic prophet. He is the voice crying out in the wilderness. And people are streaming out to see him, to hear his message of repentance, to be baptized in the waters of the Jordan. But unlike Eli, he is still God's messenger. Like Eli, he uses his power to point beyond himself so that others might see and understand what God's doing out in the wastelands alongside the Jordan. Someone's coming, he tells the local religious folk, and I come baptizing with water so that he might be revealed. John understands his purpose. He was not the light of God, but he was born to be a witness to the light so that others would come to believe. We have the moment where John is baptizing Jesus in the waters and he sees the Spirit of God descend on Jesus like a dove and perceives rightly that this man is the one he has awaited. This is the Lamb of God, the Messiah. So we pick up the narrative from that next day John testifies to his own disciples, this one, this one's the Lamb of God. And the disciples now leave him. And they go to speak with Jesus. And Jesus turns to them and he beholds them. That's the, that's the Greek. Asking what they seek, the pair ask him a simple question. They say, where do you dwell or where do you live? And Jesus invites them to come and see. And it's more than an invitation to look at his temporary lodging spot. This invitation 
is an invitation to be transformed into the dwelling place of the Spirit of the living God. Andrew and Philip are convicted that indeed this is the Messiah that they seek. And Andrew returns to Jesus with his brother Simon, who in our hearing this morning becomes Peter, the rock. And, Pete, and Philip finds Nathaniel, and he wants to give him the good news. And he says, we found him, Jesus, son of Joseph. You know, Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathaniel replies, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That backwater town? It's small, it's poor, it's obscure. The prophets don't say anything about Nazareth. And no one who's been looking for the disciples or, or the Messiah has thought to look there. Now I have preacher friends this week that find a sense of providential timing in Nathaniel's question in this text on this Sunday. Um, because we've been living this week with the murmurs and denunciations and disbelief following reports of the president's comments on immigration from nations like Haiti and countries in Africa. The responses have ranged the gamut, and what we've heard this week may indeed be shameful or embarrassing, but beneath the crass language and tactless phrasing that has been reported swirls an unspoken truth that American immigration policy until 1965 was indeed shaped to give preference to the Norwegians of this world. Now in the wake of this controversy, the Presbyterian Outlook editor, Jill Duffield, invites readers to hear Nathaniel's bias and use it to examine our own. So she writes Nathaniel's words, can anything good come out of, and she leaves a big blank, and she invites us to fill it in. A little bit tongue-in-cheek, she asks, can anything good come out of Washington, D.C.? So we might rephrase it. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come from Haiti or from Africa? Can anything good come out of places of poverty and oppression or desperation or obscurity? Yet here we are looking at the biblical witness and we remember, we remember the stories that God uses the unlikely to accomplish the improbable. And even as we remember that, we hear Jesus' invitation. Come and see. With all of the seeing and the hearing in our text this morning, I'm struck by the understanding that in them vision is more than sight and understanding demands more than a simple auditory response. It is vision that allows us to perceive the reality that God is bringing into being. Vision that communicates God's call and claims us to be servants of God's kingdom. It is vision that empowers us and encourages us to roll up our sleeves and to work towards God's justice and equity and peace, even if it be at great cost, long toil, or deep sacrifice. 
We are here on a weekend, a weekend when we honor the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was noted as a man of vision. Like Samuel and Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, he answered God's call and through his work and the work of others like him, a vision of racial equality and justice began to bloom in our nation. With this week's furor over immigration, we would do well to remember that it was the work of the civil rights movement with its call for equity and justice and peace that influenced the reform of our immigration policy back in 1965. We are called to build upon the legacies of those who have gone before. And this year we have opportunity. 50 years ago, the Reverend Dr. King and a coalition with him were instrumental in building a poor people's campaign. They built the campaign to revitalize the moral values of our nation to stand against militarism and racism and economic injustice. This is the gist of it. Dr. King was speaking at the Riverside Church in April of 1967, and he explained, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. For when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. True compassion, he said, is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice that produces a beggar needs restructuring. In 2017 and continuing into 2018, there is a new effort to build and complete the work of that poor people's campaign that was cut short by the deaths of Dr. King and supporters like Robert Kennedy. This campaign indeed seeks to build a broad and deep national moral movement to unite people who are poor and disenfranchised and marginalized across the differences of race and class and gender across the divisions of city and suburb and country. It seeks to confront the enmeshed and inseparable evils of discrimination and poverty, systemic racism and militarism, and ecological devastation that continue to be wrought in our nation. What interested me most, though, was that far from the hallmarks of power this movement is being shaped and led by the poor, by the impacted, by the marginalized, and by religious leaders and moral agents who would support them in their work. If we ask, can anything good come out of places of poverty and oppression, of desperation and obscurity, they would say to us, come and see and get ready to roll up your sleeves. That's our invitation.
the invitation of a God who calls us by name, the invitation of Christ who beholds us and knows us, we can read the account of Samuel and the disciples and see how they answer that invitation, and we can begin to understand what it means to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We can begin to understand how this moment calls us to catch God's vision and to follow the ways of Christ. How this moment calls us to find those places where God is working through the unlikely to do the improbable. How this moment calls us to see and to hear and to roll up our sleeves to do justice, promote equity, and pursue peace. And indeed, I am glad in this season for the reminders of epiphany, for the reminders that God's light still shines as the work of Christmas begins. Amen.